Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing today? I'm glad everybody's defrosted now. We're supposedly back to normal life, as normal as we can get at least. <clears throat> there was um, there was once a, a man who was an accountant. He had a very good paying job, and yet uh, y'all ever had a y'all ever had the job where you just knew that. When word came down that you were probably getting fired, you kind of knew it was coming. I remember one day, it was in 2004, and I was working at the Burger King in Arab, Alabama. And uh, if, if you don't know, if you've never been in the background of a Burger King, there's a thing called the shack, which is where all your chicken is cooked. And behind the shack on most Burger Kings, there's a giant wall of stainless steel. And I was not exactly the best worker back then. And I remember my boss told me to, um, to go sweep the floor. And, and uh, somewhere in there, the, the saying came out that Lee's mama didn't teach him how to use a broom. She did teach me how to use a broom, but I just didn't really care about using one that day. So I got assigned to clean the wall of the shack. It's a giant stainless steel wall, probably 15 feet tall. And I looked at it and I said, well, okay. So I cleaned about, mm, I was about five foot seven at that point. And so I cleaned about five foot seven worth of the 15 foot giant stainless steel wall. I knew that day I probably wasn't going to get any more hours on the schedule. Let's put it that way. Well, this guy had a very well-paying job. He, um, he was an accountant for a very uh, large uh, accounting firm. And so he, he knew that he just really wasn't doing that great of a job. He wasn't necessarily stealing money, but he just wasn't using money appropriately. He wasn't, he wasn't telling his, his, clients when he, they should probably invest. He wasn't doing the taxes very well. He, wasn't, he was just kind of floating through his job. And so he got word that his boss was going to fire him and he couldn't figure out what to do because he's an accountant. It's not like he can go out and, you know, work as construction or something. He's an accountant. All right. Sorry, Gus. Anyways, um, so he knew. He didn't know what to do. And so he decided he was going to make some friends before this was over. And so he started calling his uh, clients and, um, and said, okay, here's what, here's what we're going to do. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's toward the end of the month and it's time for you to pay again. So we're going to make this work. How much do you owe? And they tell him and he give him half off. That's the story of Luke chapter 16. If you want to go ahead and open up there, Luke 16 verse number one. Uh, one famous biblical commentator said that this, this parable that Jesus tells in Luke 16 is the most profound statement in all of Jesus' teachings. And yet it's also probably the hardest passage to understand in Jesus' teachings. Uh, people argue about this passage from left to right, and uh, I'm going to tell you uh, my interpretation of the parable and uh, don't get mad if it dif- differs from your interpretation. Uh, that's okay, because uh, this one is kind of up for grabs. So Luke chapter 16, verse number one. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought against him, this man, or that this man uh, was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. He's, a, he's an accountant. And um, 
And the manager said to himself, verse 3, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I'm, I'm an accountant. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from the management, people may receive me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. Now, I want you to, I want you to read verse 6 in, in a kind of defeatist attitude, okay? How much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. That's about two years worth of salary, okay? It's hard to... to Determine just how much money this is because we're talking about commodities and not actual money. And even when we're talking about actual money, it's hard because there's 2,000 years separated there. And it's not exactly an equal exchange rate between back then and now. But relatively speaking, 100 measures of oil is about two years worth of salary. So say $100,000. And he said, take your bill. Sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. Again, about two years worth of salary. He, He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Do you see why this is the hardest parable to ever understand? Did Jesus just use a sinful man doing a sinful practice to illustrate something and then say that we're supposed to make friends with unrighteous wealth? What in the world? So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is very dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the riches, the true riches? If you do not... If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But why then, Jesus, did you just tell me to make friends with unrighteous wealth? I thought we're supposed to be righteous. I thought we're supposed to be doing the works of righteousness and seeking after the righteousness of God. You are. But Luke 16 is an insight into the mind of Jesus. You know, when we think about Jesus, we usually think about the meek, the mild, the gentle, the sweet and loving, you know, skinny guy who sits out in the, in the pasture and has everyone come to him and he's so gentle and he never raises his voice and he's just so kind, right? Um, Luke 16 is Jesus being sarcastic. Make, with you, make friends for yourself with unrighteous wealth because it's going to fail. Uh, and if you can't be seen to be faithful in something that's going to fail, how am I supposed to give you anything that is worthwhile? You see, he's being sarcastic there because, because at some point we have to realize where our money can take us. You see, money is, is as one biblical writer said, it's the root of all evil, Paul would say. And, and yet... It's not like a sin that we can just push away, right? You can push away alcohol, drugs. You can push away pride. You can push away um, anger. You can push away malice. The, the things that Paul actually says to put away with all malice, to, to despise these actions, these mindsets. You can, you can get rid of that. But let's face it, none of us can do without money. 
We can't push money to the background and never pay attention to it anymore. Because when you leave here, you're going to get in your car and it's going to say low fuel. And then you're going to have to figure out, okay, do I push away money because it can be a, a, a sinful practice or do I go and I accept money and I, and I go get gas and then tomorrow on Monday I go to work unlike what most of us did last week because we were out for like ever and a year because of the s- snow and ice. Harris County schools were out and I'm convinced the teachers called off Friday just because they didn't want to go for a single day of the week. Anyways, but that's between me and them. Anyways, listen, I had an eight-year-old at the house was like just going nuts because he was ready to go back to school. But anyways, money is not something that we can just push aside. It's something that's there in front of us, blocking our view of what we should be reading, what we should be studying, what we should be paying attention to. And we can't get rid of it. So what do we do with it? That's why Jesus tells this parable in Luke 16. Now, he's using this parable because, like I said, it is sarcastic, but it also brings to light a very important thing. The word shrewd there, Jesus says, that, well, actually, the, the master, the manager, uh, the master says, verse 8, that he commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Shrewdness means smarts means his intelligence. It, it, it's, it's a word that actually means planning for the future. Isn't it interesting that people of the world often plan for their future much better than the people that are in the body of Christ? When it comes to money, you know, we, we rightfully so believe God will con- take care of us. God will control this. We'll be okay. And so we don't plan for the future. And what Jesus is doing is using a, a, a sarcastic illustration here to bring to light something. That the people in the world often plan for their physical futures much better than members of the church do, than followers of God do. We don't plan for our futures on this earth. And so, at the end of this passage, he says, make friends with unrighteous wealth. Because it's going to fail. Use your money for the right now to help you in eternity. Because it's going to fail, and so they will accept you into eternal homes. It doesn't mean that we go out and we treat people badly and we, we get money at whatever cost we can. At the cost of human life, maybe, at the extreme, or at the cost of friendships and relationships. And we burn bridges because we're trying to make an extra dollar, and we, we backstab because we're trying to, to climb the ladder, as it were. What he's saying is, you use money where money is useful, so that it doesn't hinder you where money is not useful anymore. Where is money useful? Right here. And so how do we use it? What, what should we do to use our money useful? Luke chapter 16, verse number 9. Again, let me just read this passage. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse number 1 says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. 
begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that he has start what he had started so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove the, by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Verse number 5 in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 8, he says that they gave themselves, that they first gave themselves, and then they gave themselves by God's will to us. These Macedonians had given everything they possibly had. They had used money in the right way, in the right time period, for something that is actually beneficial to build up their eternity. They gave everything they could. Does that mean that we have to go home now and sell everything that we own? Sell our homes and our vehicles and our possessions in order to give it to the church? Maybe, but not necessarily. But I want to point something out here. Verse number one, and numerous times in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says that what they were doing was an extension of the grace of God. Make for yourself friends with unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they will receive you into their eternal dwellings. Use your money where it is useful because you can't take it with you. The Macedonians did just that. They used their funds, they used their money, their physical possessions for what was actually beneficial. And sometimes I wonder if if we hinder the grace of God because we're worried more about what is in our wallets than what God actually wants from us. That we sit down and we spend so much time putting our budget together to try to figure out, okay, I've got to give a little bit but I've also got to take care of this and I really want to go to this trip and I really want to do this this summer and next fall and I really want to do this. And we instead stop the grace of God because we're more worried about what's in our bank account than what God has actually commanded us to do. And we don't use our finances in the time that they can be used so that we can build up our eternity. I'm not here to guilt anybody. I just want to tell you That the fact of the matter is that your money will keep you from heaven quicker than anything else will. Because you have to have it. We all understand that. It's becoming the end of the month. Which means, in about a week and a half, all the bills are going to be due. Your rent's going to be due. Your mortgage is going to be due. Your phone bill. Your power. Your water bill. Your gas bill. You're going to have to figure out how you're going to make ends meet with groceries next month. And and gas, and you're going to have to figure out how you can even get to work, and those sorts of things. We understand. I I understand that money is something that we cannot get rid of. It's something that we all have to have. And yet Jesus says there is a very real, very tangible way that we can allow money to take our possessions and put them in front 
of the grace of God in our hearts. Uh, I've used this illustration before. I've told you about her many times. She is, um, she is a stalwart of the faith, in my opinion. She's, she's gone now. She's uh, accepted her reward, as it were. But her name's Miss Betty. Just about every church has a Miss Betty, even if it's not the name Miss Betty. Although a lot of churches do have a Miss Betty. She lived in a little one-room, one-bedroom house in Joyner, Arkansas. You probably never heard of Joyner, Arkansas, because last I checked, the population of Joyner was about 212, if I remember what was on the sign last time we drove through Joyner, Arkansas. She lived across from the railroad tracks. The first time Rebecca went into her house, she said, this is Miss Betty's house? And I said, yeah, this is it. This is all she's got. One day after church at Wilson, Arkansas, population 922 when I was there, um, Miss Betty walked up in tears. Miss Betty was the, was the woman who, if you had a Bible question, she knew it before the preacher knew it. I remember one time in Bible class, we were talking about how the promise of God had been given to the nation of Israel. That when God promised the Canaan land, later on in the timeline of, of Israel's history, when they went in and captured the land of Canaan, that it, the, the text actually says that this promise was completely fulfilled. And we were talking about it in light of premillennialism, which we can talk about some other time, but I could not remember the passage. I can't remember the passage right now if you pin me down to it. But I'm sitting there teaching class for all eight of us at the Wilson Church of Christ. And I said, I don't remember that passage. I'm very sorry. And I went along with the rest of the Bible class. At the end of the Bible class, Miss Betty rose her hand and said, it's Genesis blank. I said, how did you find that? And I said, she said, well, I had a note here that went to there and I went to there and I went to there and I finally found it. She carried a Bible that was about the size of a Volkswagen because her eyes didn't work very well. She's the most faithful, loving Christian woman I have ever met in my entire life. That's not to put anybody else down. Let's just talk about Miss Betty. One day she came up after church and she said, Lee, I don't really know what to do. Um, And I said, what's wrong, Miss Betty? She was bawling. I'd never seen Miss Betty cry before. And she said, I live on $400 a month. My my daughter pays my power bill and my gas bill. Um, and, I, and I pay my water bill. And I don't have a phone. And I pay my mortgage and my groceries and that's about it. And I don't have any money to give. What do I do? And I said, Miss Betty, you need to read 2 Corinthians chapter 8. She came back the next week and said, I'm going to try my best. I'm going to give myself to God. And whatever money I get, if I can spare it, I'll give it. Some people may think that, you know, my, my measly $20 is not going to do much. And, and rightfully so. Okay, let's, let's be honest here. Let's not try to guilt each other. Let's be honest, okay? $20 is not much for all of us. Even, even if you are Miss Betty, $20 is understandably not, it's not a fortune. And so some of us will say, that's all I have. And so I... I it's more of a shame to give that than just to not give anything. And so I just won't give anything. And that's, that's let's face it, $20 is not going to go a long way in the work of the Lord. 
$20 in Tanzania is probably going to buy Wesley a pack of bananas. $20 here is going to buy two and a half packs of bananas. Bananas are expensive. Did y'all know that? Anyways, unless you go to Aldi. All right, so um, it's not a whole lot, okay? But turn to Mark chapter 12. Someone says, my, my $20 is not a whole lot. It's, it's not going to do very much. And I, I think it's better just to, to not give it than to, to look bad. Listen, um, I can attest to this. No one watches what you put in that plate. No one. Your children do. They're the only people in this building that watch what you put in that plate. And that may be something that we need to think about as parents sometimes. But nonetheless, there was a woman who was a lot like Miss Betty one time. She didn't have any money. Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Now, their penny is different than our penny. It was probably... Just about a day's wages. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all these who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she put out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All right, let's face it. Sometimes the amount of money we put in is not going to do that much. That's fine. Do you know that there were people in Macedonia? Now, I can't prove this biblically, scripturally speaking, but I guarantee you just a little common sense goes a long way sometimes. There were people in Macedonia that probably didn't have very much. They didn't, maybe they didn't have anything to give. Macedonia was not a very, it wasn't the, the metropolis that we may think. They didn't have a ton of money. In fact, in the Roman world, one in every ten Roman citizens were at, they were in danger of dying that day because they didn't have any food. Okay? So even the rich people back then didn't have a lot of money. And yet, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says that they gave themselves, and by doing that, they were an extension of the grace of God. And I wonder if sometimes we stop the grace of God because we're worried about what's in our bank account more than what God can do with that money. It's sad when we really think about the fact that as humans, as the created, we have the ability to stop the creator from doing what he needs to do. What happens if Macedonia doesn't give themselves and thereby give everything that they have and thereby give the grace of God? What happens if Macedonia's check doesn't come into Paul? Maybe the people in Jerusalem are just fine. Maybe they can make it another year in the drought. Maybe they can, maybe they can string together some other money and they'll be just fine. But maybe they don't. You see, they're giving 
was an extension of the grace of God. And sometimes in America, we think that our giving is strictly for this building. That, that the money that we put in that plate is for building funds, maintenance funds, deferred maintenance, those sorts of things. Which we've been doing at Warren Springs Road over the last about year and a month or so. We've been fixing some things up that needed fixing up. In fact, if you don't believe me, after services, walk back there and look at our baptistry. Because, wow, it looks amazing. You could eat off of that thing, except for the ladybugs. Don't eat off the baptistry. Anyways, so... We've been doing some of those things. Sometimes in America, we will think that the money that we give goes strictly to the physical things. That's not true. Because by giving, we show the grace of God. Our act of putting money in a plate or going online and giving online or wherever, however we give to the work of the church is an extension of the grace of God. And I'll, be, and I'll face it, sometimes it is sad that as Christians, we fail to partake in the grace of God simply because we don't think it's worthy, which is, I think it speaks more about our confidence in Christ than it does, um, than it does anything. But some people will stop giving because they're upset. They'll stop giving because they don't like the way the money's being spent. They'll stop giving because they don't think that it's actually being used. It doesn't matter. Any of that does not matter. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, as I've given order to Galatia, I'm giving order to you. Upon the first day of the week, lay by in store. Let every, every man lay by in store as he has prospered. That there be no collections when I come. It's not something that we have the option to decide. Just like we don't have the option to decide whether or not we're going to teach the person next door or in the grocery line the gospel of Christ, just like we don't have the option to decide whether or not we're going to gather together on Sundays to worship God in spirit and in truth, just like we don't have the option to decide how that worship is going to be offered. We don't have the we don't have options a lot of times. And sometimes that scares us. Romans chapter 6 says that we are no longer slaves of sin. We're slaves of righteousness, which means we don't have choices anymore. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, as I've given order to the churches in Galatia, I'm giving order to you. We don't have a choice. That being said, we need to realize that what we're doing when we give is partaking in the grace of God. I just want to point something out. Jesus says that we have to be faithful in the small things. You know, money really is pointless. Like, actually, money is pointless. It has no backing now in the U.S. government other than what the government says the dollar is worth, which is fine. It's just like any other major world finance, but it's pointless. It's a piece of paper that we have decided somehow that $1 equals this much goods. This many commodities, this many this, this many that, this many measures of oil or measures of wheat. We've decided that. That's because it's a small thing. It's relatively pointless. What you have here is not going to have any effect on what you have in eternity. You can be as rich as, you can be so rich, you don't know where to put your money. I have, 
I know people, I'm not going to tell you who they are because you might break, someone online might break into their house and steal all their money. I know people in Arab, Alabama who have more money under their mattress than you probably see in an entire year. And you know what? That money's going to stay in that man's mattress until he dies. And then his kids are going to go in and they're going to get it and they're going to spend it on four-wheelers and shotguns and new trucks. And then those four-wheelers, shotguns, and new trucks are going to break down one day and all of his money's going to be kind of worthless. It's a small thing. Jesus says you have to be faithful in the small things before you can be faithful in the, the large things. You have to be faithful in the small things because if not, how in the world do you expect me to give you something that is eternity? Therefore, verse 9 of Luke chapter 16, make for yourselves friends with unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, you will have planned for your future. You can't buy your reward in heaven, but with your money and how you use your money, you can show that you have a reward coming in heaven. And sometimes as Christians, we're more more worried about our reward here and our wealth here than we are about eternity. And then we lose sight of it. And we allow money to blind us. and, And we make decisions that are completely ridiculous when it comes to scriptures. We make decisions to to stop giving because we're upset. We make decisions to not give this week because we want this. Well, you know, if if I knock off that giving line on my budget next month, I can afford to go blank. I can afford to go buy blank. I can afford to go do blank. And I just want to remind us that next time we are tempted to do that, I want, instead of, I just want to challenge you in February, instead of writing giving on your budget for next month, instead of that one single word that's just giving or contribution or whatever you use on your budget, write how much I love God. I know that that the money you give does not necessarily reflect how much you love God. That the, that the actual dollar amounts on the check or the dollar bill or however much you type in online does not equate to, you know, one dollar equals one heart for God. But just write it and see if that changes the way you look next time you look at that budget and say, if I drop that line off, I, I could probably make it to where we could go out an extra time next month. Let's drop that line off. Just, just try it. I just want you to try it. At the end of February, let me know what you think. Anyways, I want to read to you one last quote, and then I'll, I'll let you go. If we're to begin to make an inventory of the things, inventory of the things we do in any single day, our muscular motions, each of which is accomplished by a separate act of will, the objects we see, the words we utter, the contrivances we frame, our thoughts, our passions, gratifications, and trials. Many of us would not be able to endure it with sobriety. What he's saying is, if you try, try to mark down every time you decided to breathe, because right now, you, you realize what you're doing right now? You are manually breathing because I said that. You're making yourself breathe, right? Write down every time you make a decision during the day to breathe, to blink your eyes. Now you're doing that manually too, aren't you? It's amazing the power that words have over minds. Anyways, write down every time you decide to take a step. 
time you decide to blink, you're doing that manually now too. And just try to keep track of everything. You won't be able to with any sobriety, but 365 such days make up a year. And a year is a 20th, 50th, or 70th part of life. And thus, with the exception of a few striking passages, our, or great and critical occasions, perhaps not more than five or six in all. What are the great things in your lives? What, what amazing things have happened in your lives? You can probably name four, five, six, ten, depending on how many kids you have, right? Write down all the amazing things. And now think about all the days that you can't even remember. All the years that you don't remember anything that happened during that year. Perhaps not more than five or six in all. Our life is made up of common and as men are wont to judge, unimportant things. But yet at the end, we've done an amazing work and determined an amazing result. We stand at the bar of God and look back on a life made up of small things. But yet a life how momentous for good or evil. Let's face it, $20 in the plate is not going to do a lot for the church. It can do a lot for your salvation and a lot for your soul. Because sometimes money will stand in the way of eternity for us because we decided to not be faithful in the small things. And how in the world do we expect God to give us the large things if we can't even be faithful to Him in the small things? Like I said, I'm not here to, gr- I'm not here to give you grief. I'm not here to embarrass anyone. I'm talking to myself just as much uh, as I'm talking to anyone else. If you'd like to become a Christian this morning, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement for you. And when we do that, we ask you to let us know. If there's some sin that you need to repent of in a public manner, please, please take care of it. That's a relatively small thing as well. Walking in front and asking for prayers from Christians is, it's scary. But when you look at an overall life, like that quote said, it's a momentary thing that is scary. And if once we get it through, we will be stronger because of it. Because we'll have Christians that are helping us, that are praying for us, and that are encouraging us. If you want to become a Christian, or you need prayers of encouragement, or you need to repent of sins publicly, let's stand and sing while we do that.